So I have the pleasure of uh, introducing Christine Cusera. She's going to uh, start off our challenging cases in daily dermatology. Christine uh, is a wonderful friend. Uh, she practices in uh, Dallas, Texas, uh, has a, a vast knowledge and a big interest certainly in psoriasis and TNF. Uh, but uh, today she's going to talk to us about challenging cases in dermatology. She's also the president-elect of our uh, society, so would you please uh, welcome Christine Cusera. Okay, we thought it would be kind of fun. This is kind of a different session where we're going to do challenging cases in daily dermatology. And this is actually cases that we have seen in our practice. There's four of us. And so we're each going to take uh, about 30 minutes and just kind of present, present some interesting things that we have seen. Okay, my first case is a TC, a 54-year-old Latino male. He presented with a 10-day history of diffuse burning, painful crops of occasionally hemorrhagic vesicles and violaceous papules, some in linear patterns and some annular. It began initially on the arms, then spread to the abdomen and to the sides of his legs. The rash began after cutting grass in East Texas and worsened, uh, was worsened with heat. Patient thought the rash was from ant bites or possible poison ivy. This is his initial visit to our clinic um, last July, and you can see that the uh, the vesicles are, are cropped. Um, they're very, very inflamed and angry. And with his uh, history, um, you know, it could have been poison ivy or contact dermatitis that he just had a severe dissemination to or something like that. Once again, his initial visit, you could see just how inflamed and vesicular um, his lesions were. And these pretty much covered his entire body when he came in. So he initially was treated by PCP with cephalexin and a medrol dose pack. Biopsies were done and the patient was started on Valtrex and Clobex spray. Uh, we thought for a minute this could be some sort of viral thing, uh, you know, disseminated, you know, herpes infection, something like that. The biopsy result, results showed sweet syndrome. The patient was taken off Valtrex, prednisone was started, and it was slowly tapered over six weeks with gradual improvement. And you can see here just after five days of prednisone, most everything started crusting and healing. And uh, the patient actually did very well and um, is completely healed at this time with just in post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. So Sweet syndrome was first described by uh, Robert Sweet in 1964. And he found it in, a, in a eight women. And it was uh, diagnosed or called acute febrile netrophilic dermatosis. Now, skin findings and sweet syndrome. Uh, remember with this guy's history, it could have been something besides sweet syndrome. So these are kind of things you need to keep in the back of your mind when you see someone like this. He did have an acute painful eruption, uh, papules and plaques. They can appear very juicy, um, very vascular. They usually occur on the head, neck, legs, arms, and hands and they can ulcerate and form adjacent pustules. Uh, the patient did have a fever when he came in, uh, malaise, arthralgias, arthritis, conjunctivitis, scleritis, and oral um, apathy. It was interesting because when this guy came in, he was walking, he was walking with a cane, and we just kind of thought when we first saw him that he had you know, arthritis or bad knee or something like that. But as he improved, he stopped bringing his cane. So this disease caused such inflammation in his joints that he had to use a cane while he was 
um, having this episode. So it can be pretty, pretty painful. You can see his laboratory, he did have increased uh, white blood cells and ESR, elevated alk phosphate and a positive C-reactive protein, and the skin biopsy showed an abundance of neutrophils in the dermis. Um, course in prognosis, this is normally self-limiting. It does respond quickly to treatment. Treatment of choice is high dose prednisone. Um, you do have to taper it very slowly, and you have to keep the patient on it long term. You can't just give them 10 to 14 days and expect them to get better. Uh, skin lesions can clear within 10 days, um, and the 15% uh, can develop relapses. We noticed in this patient it did take longer than 10 days for his lesions to clear. They did kind of start to crust over, the, the vesicles went away, um, but he still had a lot of post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. It did take a while for the uh, crusted lesions to go away, but um, the I would say that his uh, joint pain, his knee pain, lasted much longer than 10 days. Now, this can be associated with certain things. Uh, it can be associated with malignancy. 20% uh, of all cases, uh, most of the time, is related. Um, and the things you need to look for, AML, uh, myelodysplastic syndromes, uh, some solid tumors can be underlying inflammatory disorders. Um, in all the literature I was reading about uh, sweet syndrome, it, it mentioned inflammatory bowel disease over and over. So uh, that's a big one. And then autoimmune diseases. Drugs can also uh, cause this. Uh, lithium, furosemide, uh, Bactrim, OCPs, and hydralazine. Uh, so these are some of the drugs that can actually cause a sweet syndrome uh, reaction. Treatment, need to treat the underlying cause. Um, once again, like I said, in all the literature that I read about this, they were saying uh, it's very, very important if a patient does have a, a bowel disease, that has to be treated or the patient may continue to get sweet syndrome over and over and over. Prednisone, um, tapered over a month. We actually did high dose and tapered it over six weeks just because um, of the, the course of the lesions. And certainly if they get better faster, you can taper it faster. Um, for a relapse, you can use Dapsone, Colchicine, Doxycycline, Potassium, and Clofazamine. Here's some examples of sweet syndrome. Um, this is a healing stage. Okay, and then let's move on to case two. So case two, this is MH, and she was a 52-year-old African-American female. She had a history of multiple cysts on her forehead, neck, axilla, and groin, and they were all present since birth. She had a strong family history of cystic lesions, mother, sister, grandmother. This patient, we actually saw her mother and her son and her grandson. And it was interesting because they all had cystic lesions. Um, they were inflammatory draining lesions in all body folds since age 12. She had multiple epidermal cysts on her forehead and neck. They were very confluent. Multiple comedones on the cheeks with scarring. She had cystic nodules and draining sinuses in her axillae, breast folds, lower abdomen, and groin. And she did have a pilonidal sinus. She had a significant quality of life impairment. The patient was embarrassed. She was crying in the office. Um, it was very, very sad. Previous therapies, she'd had multiple systemic antibiotics, multiple topical antibiotics, topical retinoids, systemic prednisone, and Accutane. So she had pretty much tried it all to try to get these things to clear up. 
You can see here multiple, multiple lesions on the neck. Uh, they, were, they were everywhere, all over her face, her arms, everywhere that you can imagine. She had nodules. Um, and this is her breastfold. I mean, you can imagine how painful that is um, all the time. It was like that all the time. And then here was in her axilla. So she had a severe case of hydronenitis suppurativa um, and pretty much had exhausted all her treatment options. Um, remember that this disease is chronic. Um, it's often a scarring disease of the apocrine gland bearing skin, much more common in females than males. Uh, Mother-daughter transmission has been observed repeatedly. So it was very interesting, interesting in this case that when she came in, her mom came with her, and her mom was in her 70s, and then her son and then her grandson came. And it was interesting that they all had lesions, even the grandson. He was um, adorable. He was probably, I think he was seven, and he had already had lesions in his groin area. And we actually biopsied every family member um, and sent it to the lab just to make sure there was, wasn't some sort of weird hereditary condition, and it, it just turned out to be hydrogenitis suppurativa. Uh, predisposing factors for this disease is obesity, genetics, apocrine duct obstruction, and secondary bacterial infections. And the most common bacteria, remember, is staph, strep, E. coli, and pseudomonas. Now, treatment options. This poor patient had been through pretty much all of these. Interlesional steroids, systemic antibiotics, systemic prednisone, oral isotretin, and surgical incision and excision. Remember, if you are able to control this disease with any of the above treatment, it's something the patient is going to be on long-term. It's very chronic. Um, it's very hard to get it cleared up and to stay clear. We have multiple patients we've treated on oral isotretin, and as long as they're on it, their skin is great. But the minute you take them off, their skin goes back to the way it was. So then you start to think, how long can you keep a patient on oral isotretin? You know, we've done eight months, we've done 10 months, but at some point, you probably need to give them a break. Okay. This is uh, kind of interesting. We have three cases at Texas Dermatology where I work in Dallas that uh, we actually um, did something kind of cool with these patients. Um, these were patients that um, two were male, one was female. They presented with the cystic lesions and draining sinuses and all that stuff since adolescence. No response to all the therapies available, none. Um, multiple prior surgeries. These, these three patients had actually been to surgeons several times and had uh, lots of scarring, lots of uh, lesions cut out. Um, significant quality of life impact. These patients were just at, in dire straits. They were at their wits end. They, had, they begged us for anything that we could do. So we started Remicade. And this is completely off-label, just so you'll know, but um, I'm going to tell you about it because it worked and it's cool and I love it. Um, we started these patients on Remicade. All patients showed dramatic improvement within the th first three doses at weeks 0, 2, and 6. Two of the patients have stayed on infliximab for over three years. Um, and are now on maintenance therapy every eight weeks. They have not had a, a hydrogenitis lesion since we started them on Remicade. I mean, and they are just incredibly grateful to us. The third patient was only allowed to have seven infusions and then was denied by insurance. From a efficacy safety perspective, works amazing. Insurance is going to be your only issue with this. 
Um, we were able to get these three patients approved. We have actually had several patients we've sent to, to the insurance company and they have been denied. Um, the key with trying to get somebody on Remicade for this condition is to take lots of photos and send them in. Let the people at the insurance company see what it looks like. And a lot of times they will go ahead and approve it. Okay, and here's some uh, lesions. You can see on the uh, upper axilla there and after one treatment they're uh, pretty much resolved. I know it's hard to see the depth of, thing in, in, of things in photos, but these were actually very nodular because this is actually one of my patients. He's an attorney. Um, these were very nodular and painful. You could barely even touch his armpit. And here they're completely macular, completely macular, and that was after one treatment of Remicade. Okay, let's go to this one. This is my last case. And this is kind of a fun case that came in. Um, this is a, a SP. He's a 55-year-old white male. Five-year history of a chronic ulcer, posterior neck with slow, gradual enlargement, frequent trauma due to excessive picking, previous biopsies showed nonspecific ulceration, uh, lots of... Um, Stains were done, AFB, PAS gram stains, fight stains. Everything was negative for microorganisms and he had no signs of any kind of malignancy. Uh, negative bacterial and fungal cultures. This is what we saw when, we, when you took his shirt off. We were like, wow. <laughs> um, so anyway, you know, we did a huge history. You know, couldn't really figure out any reason why this ulcer couldn't be healed. Here's another picture of it. Um, what was interesting about him, um, he had had so many prior treatments to this. He'd had skin grafts, he'd had debridement and placement of Integra, that um, skin that grows. He'd had debridement and split thickness skin grafts. He'd had everything done to him possible to get this thing to heal. And there was no underlying malignancy, organism, anything brewing that could keep this thing alive. Well, after we all left, he told the staff nurses that he felt there was a demon in his back trying to come out. Okay, quote, after we had all left the room, you know, the whole slew of providers at my office all went in there and tried to figure out what was wrong with this guy. So after we left, then he told the nurse this. So we sent him for a psychiatric evaluation. He was admitted for inpatient psychiatric treatment where they would also continue to give wound care. And um, he actually did well. Um, I put this up here just to kind of make everyone remember that we can be fooled by our patients. Make sure you do a really, really thorough history. I mean, if this guy immediately had told one of the providers that he thought there was a demon in his back, then we probably, you know, could have helped him a lot sooner or he probably wouldn't have had to go through all that surgery and everything without psychiatric treatment. That was the bottom line. He had to get psychiatric treatment or this was not going to heal up. So, those are my three cases. I, those are the ones I thought were the neatest in the past couple of months. And now I'm going to have Greg come up. Um, Greg is a uh, PA who works in uh, Wisconsin. He's been practicing dermatology for 12 years, and he is our CME chairman, so he's the one that um, puts all our wonderful meetings together. So, Greg, if you'll come on up. Wisconsin, in case you haven't been following the news has been butt cold this winter and I've been trying to get out of there forever and of course what did I do I took a new job in Wisconsin um, there is uh, I live right above the Mississippi River beautiful place 
12 acres. I have sheep and dogs and cats and chickens and everything else you could possibly think of on a farm. Um, and it is quite gorgeous, but you have to put up with nine months of winter, which has been an ongoing issue with myself and my spouse, actually. Um, she seems to like winter, and I'm very adverse to it. Um, how about Phoenix? Is anybody from the Phoenix area? Uh, you guys need to see me, too. We have a very important conference there next year, and I need help over there. Um, so we're going to go ahead and talk about a few cases uh, that I've had. First one's a 21-year-old female. She was referred by Student Health uh, at UW, University of Wisconsin-La Crosse, um, for a lesion that just wasn't healing. They had treated it several times with different types of antibiotics. She'd had it for about five weeks, um, but she was unsure about exactly when it started. The lesion appeared fairly rapidly, but it wasn't painful, and it really didn't itch. It would increase in swelling during the day, um, or at night, and then decrease through the day. There was no recollection of trauma or insect bite, no history of HSV recurrence. It had been treated for infection again times two with absolutely no effect. Uh, and she didn't have any constitutional symptoms. She didn't have any fatigue, shortness of breath, no abdominal pain or distension, no diarrhea. And she denied any vision changes. Social history, she was an archaeology student at the UWL. She'd spent the summer in, um, in an archaeological dig in Belize and was the unofficial flea and leech picker. Uh, in this dig. I'd love to be an archaeology, archaeologist. Uh, unfortunately, my youngest daughter actually thinks she wants to be an archaeologist, too. Um, you don't know what you do besides dig. Um, but she loves it. So this is the uh, initial lesion that was a presentation. And this is about early November. You'll see that it's uh, somewhat edematous, um, has a slight erosion in the central portion, same one. She also had one on her left arm. Now this one she hadn't really noticed before, so it could have been there perhaps earlier. So the working diagnosis was leishmaniasis. Was it my working diagnosis? No. Um, it was my doc's working diagnosis. I had him actually come in and take a look at this because it was quite unusual. Fortunately, um, he did all his training in Texas in the Houston area. Um, and he thought it might be Tropica Mexicana, which is more common. And he actually had a contact at the Parasitic Disease Division down in the CDC. So he's able to get a hold of them and, and uh, make contact initially uh, right up front, which was very beneficial in the end. We did a three and a half millimeter punch, and we did it times two. And uh, one from the uh, medial canthus, the other one from the arm. One was sent for H&E over at Mayo, where I worked at the time, at their dermatopathology. The other one was sent to the CDC 
for uh, culturing. Now you can tell Leishmaniasis from uh, H&E, but you can't get the species. And the species is important, as we'll see in a minute. Treatment was actually deferred for um, until there was a definitive diagnosis. Histology did confirm Leishmaniasis. Uh, the medication was ordered from the CDC, uh, and we did go ahead and put a PICC line in. Again, I didn't do that. Um, Culture did confirm Leishmaniasis brasiliensis. Um, so the treatment. The treatment is somewhat difficult, and there's been some advances recently that have helped. But we use Pentastam. Pentastam, uh, at that time, could only be getting, gotten from the CDC. And you could only get it if you confirmed leishmaniasis. And they wanted the actual tissue in their hands before that they would, they would give you the medication. And they actually FedExed this medication to you. And the dose is actually 20 milligrams per kilogram per day. And it's IV and it's given uh, over 10 minutes or greater. You have to give them 20 days worth, which is you can go a little bit over, but you can't go under. It's important that you get an EKG because you can get some variation in rhythm, and that's very important. And you have to make sure that they get the EKG before they get the pentastam. Because if they get it after, they get all kinds of crazy little rhythms. And that's not really what you want to know. You want to know what it is at baseline. Um, CBC, HCG, can't get pregnant. Um, and then you're checking uh, liver, kidney, and um, pancreas. During the treatment, she missed one day due to nausea. And, and she was a great patient. She really was. Um, but now she hears about this leishmaniasis and gets on the computer and talks to her mother, was a nurse, and it, it got really crazy. And so she was freaking out. The nausea, I think it was more nerves than anything else, but we did stop the treatment for a day. And then she did get the flu, and we had to stop the treatment for three days. It's not the most pleasant treatment. It's an antimonial. And you get nausea, you get diarrhea, you get vomiting, you don't feel so good. Um, so you really have to make sure that you kind of handhold these patients. The Ariax resolved over six weeks. Now, fairly well, she did have some minimal scarring. Here you see she still had some scarring. Part of that's from the biopsy there. So, leishmaniasis. Leishmaniasis is um, not very common in the U.S., except on border areas, especially in the Texas area. There's old world and there's new world. And when, we don't have time for all that. We're concerned primarily with um, New World, especially in the Texas area. Old World, if people are traveling in Kenya, India, in the Sudan, in those types of places. And the way that it happens is the parasite gets ingested by the sand flea on a blood meal. Well, the parasite goes to the gut and starts to replicate. It starts to migrate towards the esophagus, 
or the pharynx and gets stuck in the esophagus. Well, the only way that it can breathe and eat is to spit that out. So that's what it does on a blood meal, is it discards that and it gets in onto the skin and then gets into the skin uh, with the actual bite. There's uh, three different types. There's uh, cutaneous, mucocutaneous, and visceral. And they're kind of varying degrees. Cutaneous, not so bad. Visceral, very, very bad. Uh, cutaneous is fairly benign. The problem with cutaneous, however, is if it's on a cosmetic sensitive area because it can continue to grow and it can be very scarring. So in the case of, of this girl here, it was right next to her eye right on the nose. Now the more important thing is, is this was actually Brasiliensis is more of a mucocutaneous uh, organism and it can get into the nasal cavity and very, be very destructive. So that's one of the reasons that you have to treat these. Um, you know, you'll read articles where they say that, you know, it's self-limiting and, you know, it's just like the same people that don't treat HSV labialis. You know, it'll go away, it won't kill you, you know, you'll have a big goomba on your face, but that's okay. Um, you got to take these seriously. So increased mucosal spread, we were really concerned about this getting into the nasal cavity and then in, uh, metastasizing down to the hard palate. You gotta be careful about lesions over joints. Lesions over joints uh, can cause um, restriction of movement located in a cosmetically uh, area, a sensitive area. And I gotta mess up on my slide there. So mucosal lesions we talked about, visceral lesions primarily um, liver and uh, lymph nodes um, and, and that needs to be of course uh, treated aggressively and certain species have certain uh, areas that they inhibit and attack and it has to do with temperature so the lesions that are on the cutaneous level tend to like cooler temperatures than those that are on the visceral level because they like things in the core. So they like things closer to the um, liver. Prevention. Prevention is just like anything else like malaria or any type of uh, insect uh, vector. Uh, nets, deet, stay out of the woods um, from dusk to dawn and, and uh, most of those. So prevention is your best key. Again, treatment uh, primarily the drug of choice is uh, pentavalent antimonials. Um, pentastam is the number one. Amphoceratin B is also another one and actually can be used in pregnancy because it's a category B. The antimonials are uh, category C. And then pentamidine. Okay. Case two is a 42-year-old uh, Caucasian male. He had six months of progressive tightening of his, and thickening of his skin. He found it difficult to clench his steering wheel. Now this guy was a, a great guy. He works with autistic children and he drives them around, picks them up at home, takes them to this special uh, Catholic charity that uh, he works at. He also works with them for, in dexterity movements. So he was trouble, having trouble clutching the steering wheel of the bus. 
And that's how he first noticed it. And then he noticed that his dexterity wasn't so good anymore. And he, he was losing some of the feeling in his fingers. He had chronic kidney disease. He had, he had been on long-term dialysis. He had had one kidney transplant. However, he had subsequent, subsequent surgery and they transected the transplanted kidney when in this, during the surgery, so he lost the kidney. Again, I didn't do that. Um, so it's a sad story. I mean, the guy get a, gets a kidney, he was doing fairly well, they had to go in because of some complications unrelated to the kidney, and the kidney got destroyed. On physical exam, he had this diffuse thickening on the dorsum of his hands. Um, where it was most evident, primarily, he was unable to completely close his fist. About 75 to 80% is all he could get. It's extended somewhat up to, to his forearms and arms, a little bit on his chest, but primarily on the uh, upper extremities, or distally primarily. So this is uh, the gentleman, and you can see it almost has a scleroderma look to it. He has thickening uh, on his hands. You can see where his, his arms are getting somewhat uh, deformed. So we did a punch biopsy on, um, thinking maybe scleroderma or other fibrosing type condition. Uh, it was actually somewhat difficult to close the, the biopsy site because the skin was so thickened. So the diagnosis came back as uh, nephrogenic systemic fibrosis. This was originally called nephrogenic fibrosing dermopathy, but then they found out that it, it is a systemic disease that has a cutaneous uh, manifestation. So that's why they changed the, the names. And they're, they're somewhat interchangeable. There's a, a support group that uses both names in their, in their name. So uh, treatment in this case, we started on my Gleevec. And this was unfortunately just as I was leaving my last practice, um, which was three weeks ago. <clears throat> Gleevec is for CML. It's experimental. Unfortunately, nephrogenic fibrosing uh, dermopathy there's no good cure for it. The only thing that you can do is increase their renal function. The people that are at highest risk are people that have acute chronic, severe acute chronic uh, um, renal insufficiency, usually with a GFR of less than 30. It's kind of the guidelines. It tends to be primarily on the um, lower extremities and the abdomen. It can be uh, life-threatening because it can affect the lung tissue and the diaphragm, which in that case it would not be good. Treatments are somewhat, um, it's a rare condition, it's about 4% of the people that are in a subcategory. And those subcategory are the people that have chronic renal insufficiency, but now they found that they've been exposed to uh, gadolinium. At first it was just, you know, chronic kidney disease, all these people have chronic kidney disease, renal insufficiency, and they're getting this. The first case was uh, 1997. Then they started seeing that these people were getting MRIs and MRAs. 
MRIs or uh, magnetic renaissance, uh, renaissance uh, angiography. And it's to look at blood vessels. And in this case, it was when he was getting the uh, transplant. So gadolinium is an interesting compound. It helps with renaissance. Uh, it's a um, paramagnetic compound, uh, a metal, that they manufacture by chelating. And they chelate it to an uh, organic, uh, a large organic molecule, so it takes some of the toxicity out of the gadolinium. That molecule is actually broken down in the liver, or the kidney, I'm sorry, the, in the kidney. Now when that happens, if you have decreased kidney function, it gets out into the tissue. And when it gets out into the tissue, it activates some of the uh, fibroblast. And that's when you have the problem. So on these people, if you take a biopsy, you can actually find gadolinium in their tissue. Um, so that's kind of the source of where this fibrosing is coming from. There's other uh, treatments. Again, they're not very good. You can use Dovonex under occlusion. You can use uh, thalidomide, um, uh, oral prednisone. With oral prednisone, they don't know if you're, you know, that the kidneys are getting better, if you're actually uh, helping with the fibrosing. But once the fibrosing is there, what you're trying to do is stop further fibrosing. Okay, the next gentleman. A 67-year-old Caucasian male. He comes into my office. This is actually about eight years ago. He has bumps on his penis, which is always something I love to hear. He always tells my nurse that it's bumps on his head. But then I get, you know, I got this bump on my head, but, you know, I got this bump, on, and I can't find a bump on his head, and he tells me about the bumps on his penis. Um, he's had no previous treatment. He's not currently sexually active, we're hoping. Um, he's a long-haul truck driver, a, a nice guy, not home much, and uh, hasn't seen a doctor in a long time, hasn't had a physical in, uh, since he left the Navy, which was at that time almost 25 years previously, which might have been part of the problem. Uh, he was divorced, he's a very heavy smoker. You know how you can tell, you know, you, if you're up close and you can tell smoke, you know, maybe a half a pack. If it's uh, three or four feet, it's about a pack. If you walk in the room and you smell it, it's two packs. If you're in the hallway and, every, and nurses are out spraying the air freshener, then it's three or more. So this is what he had. Do we know what it is? It can cheat because it's on your paper, I believe. But it's Bruchus carcinoma. This is actually a fairly rare tumor because, of course, people don't let these get these far. Um, it's actually found fairly commonly in its rare form um, in the mouth. It does have an HPV um, basis to it, uh, probably uh, 16, HPV 16 tends to be on more uh, uncircumcised males. I don't know why. Um, but uncircumcised males get more HPV. He didn't seem overly concerned about it. Except maybe his pants didn't fit anymore. Um, 
so the conundrum was, what are we going to do about this? And he was very concerned about that too, which is probably why he hadn't come in. Because there's probably one thing he was thinking about, you know, is he going to lose his pee-pee? So, luckily, uh, Dr. Clark Otley is a great mode surgeon over at uh, Mayo. I took photographs and sent them uh, across on the email, and we just call him up. To, he looks at the email and then gets back to us. And he was able to actually remove this. He took all those off. There's one that's right there. Oops. In the corner there. Right here. Was also a brucoid carcinoma. So he took both those off and all the brothers and sisters there's too. Um, and he had a very good effect. Um, completely cleared up. Didn't have any recurrence. Um, he was lost to follow up a couple of years ago. I think I saw him in 2005 was the last time I saw him. And he was still uh, lesion free. These are very uh, well differentiated tumors and, and have very low potential of metastasis. The only time anybody's ever died of these is direct extension into a major organ, just like basal cell carcinoma. Um, you can do EDNCs on these. In which case, I wouldn't do it on this one. Um, you know, this guy needs to be under and have a good Mohs surgeon up here dissecting it off. And what he did was he actually debulked it the first time and then went back later. I think it was two weeks later and went in and did the repair. And that, was, that allowed him to see more where the margins were. And it was, it was much more easier to do that way. Okay. Now I just have some slides, which are always a good thing. Okay, uh, brucoid carcinoma, we talked about it. Uh, biopsy confirmed, you know, referred to Mayo for Mohs. Okay, so 78-year-old female comes in, has this on her hand. This actually isn't why she came in. What is this? Her ring is causing contact dermatitis, so she's using steroid on here. She's using Lydex. And somebody gave her 60 grams of Lydex to treat something on one phalanx of the finger. Um, and that's what I always tell people. You know, you don't have to restrict by um, strength, but you need to restrict by quantity. You can't give somebody 60 grams or or even 30 grams when you have a small lesion or you're going to use it a short period of time. And a lot of us, you know, I have been uh, guilty of it in the past, is you get busy and you get into the mode where, you know, the zoxymetazone, 0.25% cream, apply twice daily, Monday through Friday for two weeks, 60 grams, and sign it off. Um, you got to be really careful and, and really think about how much you're going to give them, especially in the economy today, because the people are not going to come back and see you if they're doing okay. If they find that every time it gets irritated, they can just put this Lydex on there, they're not going to come back and see you, especially in, in my territory. Some of these people will travel an hour and a half to two hours to come see me. Um, so they're not going to make that trip again, especially this lady came in with her daughter, and they're always worried, you know, my daughter can't get off work, and daughter's going to her, mom, mom, that's okay. Wisconsin, the home of Harley-Davidson. 
This is about the fifth one I've seen. I keep forgetting to ask if they're going to the same tattoo artist, which I probably should. But in, in my town, there's one on every corner. That and a tanning bed, um, which is usually attached to the laundromat that you can get beer at. So it's a one-stop shopping. So as everybody knows, this is a, a contact allergy to uh, red dye in the tattoo. This is not a good thing. There, you can't get rid of this red dye. Does anybody knows has done any lasering? The red's not good. It kind of sticks around. And sometimes you can disperse it, but it makes it even worse. He, what we did was we did interlesional injections. Worked pretty good. We see them about once every six months doing interlesional injections. If they're not too big, and this is way too big, on some, not in a good spot, you can do serial excision. Uh, which is sometimes what they want to do because it's just driving them crazy because it, it's just like crazy. Um, I have one lady that her name is Cherry so she's got two cherries on her ankle um, and they get pretty large about five or six times a year so we go in there and inject them because she doesn't want to get rid of them although they're quite you know they'd be easy to get rid of but they were given to her by her daughters and her daughters got them she's not the sharpest stick to begin with so you just do what you can for these people you got to really educate your and I educate all my acne patients all my young kids about um, tattoos I have two daughters one's in medical school the other one is a freshman in college they got the lecture and my oldest daughter called me when she was 18 and I said no tattoos she says you didn't say anything about piercings and she's right I don't really care well I did but nothing I can do about it um, I'd rather she not get a tattoo as far as I know she doesn't have one but it's not like she's three and I see all her body anymore so she could have several of them but back to the education, you, can ed you need to educate your patients. Just because they're there for acne doesn't mean that you can't talk to them about sunscreen or you can't talk to them about uh, tattoos or any number of things. Um, and I have pictures like this all over my exam rooms. And they usually, they usually bring it up and you can say, well, you know, look at this. Or do you, and I got one lady, she's 50, I think she's 58 now. She has a grapevine going all the way from her hip, winding around her leg down to her ankle. Well, it looked really good when she was 20. She's a little saggy now. And I don't know if it even looks like a grapevine. It's kind of intersecting now. And she wishes like the Dickens she didn't have that. We actually have that uh, sitting up on our, our uh, board. And then again, contact dermatitis. Uh, this is from double antibody appointment, probably bacitracin. So you got to be careful about those. We just use Vaseline now. Kind of took care of the problem. And she cleared right up. Give her a little steroid. 
And what I like to do with these is they're always freaking out about infection. So um, I'll actually take a little bit of steroid and mix it with uh, some genomycin sometimes, or I'll just mix it with a, um, a Vaseline. It sticks better and it works really well. And it's cheap. That's it. And we're done. Thank you.